This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to my favorite murder. That's Georgia Hartstar. That's Karen Kilgariff. We're both wearing Mr. Rogers style sweaters right now. Oh, we are. Don't you feel a little bit like I, I'm doing a forced cozy on my side because I'm like, <laughs> it's maybe 62 degrees. Yeah. And it's... Which is cozy weather. It really is. Yeah. I would start a fire if I could. <laughs> Don't start a fire in your fireplace or just in general because you're angry. Oh, backfield. Yeah, definitely do it. Right? Yeah. For coziness. Cozy. So the whole city can be cozy (laughs) at one time. Yeah, we are wearing Mr. Rogers RIP style sweaters. He's number one forever. I'll never forget. That's right. Watching that documentary on a a flight. I'm sure it was one up to one of our shows. Uh And I was only like, 15 minutes in and I was crying so hard I had to turn it off because I was making the businessman sitting next to me so uncomfortable. (laughs) Good. I couldn't like wipe my tears away enough. My sleeves were soaking wet. It was... Oh my God. You're just like splashing him with tears. With with childhood trauma. (laughs) Nostalgic childhood trauma. (laughs) Yeah. Everywhere, all over the place. What have you been doing in this weather? One thing I did, I found a TV show that I think you're going to love that you might have found already. It's British. Okay. Okay. It's a British show, so there's one check in your favor. Great. And the nun from Dairy Girls is in it. Hell yeah. Siobhan McSweeney. I was just randomly trying to find a show to like a feel-good show this weekend. And uh, because I was home alone for the weekend and I I don't want to get scared, you know? Yep, So I need something happy. Um, so it's called Extraordinary and it's on Hulu. Did you see it? It's basically, it's like, okay, it's a comedy. The, it's in England. It, the premise is it's this girl who's like 25 and she's, it's kind of this mix between like Dairy Girls and Fleabag. And in this world, which is basically our world, except everyone at 18, when they turn 18, get their superpower, whatever it may be. And everyone has a different one. But she is this like 25-year-old kind of loser who hasn't, who never got her superpower. (laughs) She's like the only person in the world. And she's trying to figure it out. It's so charming. It's called Extraordinary. That sounds really amazing. I thought you were talking about Maeve Higgins had a film out with Will Forte from three years ago called Extraordinary. Oh. And for a second, I thought that's what you were going to start describing. And I was like, <laughs> it just seemed a little from the past. So yeah. now there's two recommendations with the title Extraordinary. There you go. What more do you need? That sounds good. It's really charming and messy and I like it. I took a recommendation of yours, hmm. but I mm-hmm. had friends in town and we went to El Coyote. <gasps> Yes. And 
that restaurant, if <sighs> if there was ever a restaurant in Los Angeles that's worth the wait, because there's always a wait. You yeah. can't make a reservation and everyone wants to go there. It is yeah. like Mexican Christmas 365, <laughs> 24-7, blah, blah, blah. It's just like the most standard Mexican food. But I got to tell you, yeah. their, their chips and dip, like oh. their pico de gallo is incredible. Yeah. I love the food. It's Michelin star. It's so good. I call it Disneyland Mexican food. You know what I mean? Where it's like, it's kitschy Mexican food, but I fucking love it. It's so, those crunchy tacos are like something straight out of 1975. And it's where Sharon Tate had her last meal. So you can tell your friends that when you go there too, everyone. And what I thought was interesting is we all, because it was a group of friends who hadn't seen each other since kind of, for a while, not, Mm -hmm. not, not pre-COVID, but also it had been a long time because we mm-hmm. used to all see each other so much more. And we all had the same conversation that you and I had last show about the weird, what I'm like now calling in my mind, like this social dysphoria that yeah. we're all experiencing, post-lockdown social dysphoria, where yeah. we don't know where we belong in the social like stream. We don't yeah. know where to jump in. Everything seems maybe a little dangerous, a little too cold, a little this, a little that. Then you do it and you have the best time and you're like, why don't I go out all the time? But then totally. you're like, oh, it's because I never go out and that's why I liked it this much. And it's not always <laughs> like, right. everybody was talking about that. It was hilarious. And I'm like, oh, this people need to process this. Yeah. You know, what another thing is, I don't know how I dress now. Like when we went into lockdown, I was 39 and now I'm 42. And I, my body's not the same. I don't have the same style. I don't have the same patience for the style I had before with the fussy vintage shit. So I I don't know what to put on when I want to leave the house. So I just don't leave the house. Can I tell you? You dress like Mr. Rogers, and that's, that's good. That's right. That's it's right. It's a good look. He was very, he was really kind of fit and ready. Sure, he switched in and out of sweaters a lot, but he also wore. Mm-hmm. I do that too. What's better than throwing on or taking off a sweater? Takes his shoes off and puts slippers on when he comes in the house. I do that too. That's so you. It's so me. <laughs> Just give over Mr. to Mr. Rogers chic. <laughs> We're you calling should cut it. your hair like Mr. <laughs> Just like get it above the ears. Dare me, dare me. Dare me to do it, I'll do it. <laughs> and then get some of those nice, like always ironed pants. What are they called? Like Oh, slacks, slacks, stay press, stay press. Yes, some yes. stay press slacks. Yes. Mm, that'll be nice. That'll be good. That'll look good on me. That's my new era of dress. Can I recommend a podcast? Yeah. Can I recommend two? One I just started, but I love to do that because this one I believe in. But so the first one I just started, but believe in, it's because it's from the people who brought you murder in Oregon. Oh yeah, that was a great one. Legendary host Lauren Bright Pacheco. I hope Mm -hmm. I'm saying that correctly. I believe I am. So it's about, this is a season three of on that same RSS feed. Mm -hmm. It's called Murder in Miami. And that same columnist from the Oregonian, Phil Stanford, Mm -hmm. It's his story of moving to Florida and getting involved in stuff down there. And it's great because that guy, what made Murder in Oregon such a listenable... Totally. It's the story of the murder of Michael Frank, but Mm -hmm. it's how this one columnist really kind of wouldn't let it go. Right. And lost his job because... It's an amazing... Love those stories. It's it's really good. Okay, so Murder in Miami. 
Okay. Marty in Miami, it's to Phil Stanford's back to tell you how it is to be a journalist, <laughs> which I just find so compelling. But then there's another one from BBC, and it's uh-huh. called The Boy in the Woods. And Ooh. that host, yeah, that host is Winifred um, Robinson. And she tells this story that is, it's a very sad child murder, mm. very disturbing told so beautifully. They get these interviews. It's just, you know, BBC style. They're out like in the location interviewing people and following. And apparently Winifred Robinson was a journalist on the story when it first broke. And she's basically going back to get the full kind of comprehensive story. When did it happen? The crime, the murder? The early 90s. Okay. Ooh, yeah. Right. I want to, I want to listen to that one. It's great. The Boy in the Woods. Okay. And you have a hometown to read us. Oh, and then going into a, let's call it community mailbag. Okay. (laughs) Our producer, Alejandra, thank you. She found this. It was a hometown that was related to the story I did last week about Houdini. So it says, I'm not going to read you the subject line because it's really good. It says, hello to all. This is the third time I've submitted the story, but I refuse to give up because I think it's a great one. And the timing may finally be right since you just shared your Houdini story. That's keeping it positive. When you're not getting Mm -hmm. the results you want, you just keep going for it. Try, try again. Yep. My great-grandfather's name was J.B. Rhine, and he coined the term extrasensory perception, or ESP. Ooh. Mm-hmm. He was also part of the community of people aiming to debunk mediums at the time, which brings me to my story. Houdini was in Boston in the 20s, demonstrating the tricks phony mediums like Mina Marjorie Crandon used to use on a live audience. Houdini had discredited Marjorie's practices two years earlier, and JB authored a public damning expose about her after sitting in her seance and realizing it was a scam. After the show, JB was introduced to Houdini backstage. While they were talking about their experiences with mediumship, Houdini surreptitiously slipped a foot out of his shoe and pinched JB hard on the leg with his toes. (laughs) Houdini then explained to a confused JB that mediums often use toe dexterity to manipulate miracles, claiming these mysterious pinches in the dark came from the beyond. His toe flexibility also helped him be such a great escape artist. Wow. When I know, right? When JB went home, he noticed his leg had a huge bruise. Holy shit. And then it just goes, thank you so much for all you do. My great aunt and dad helped me research this a bit for you. And we're so excited to hear a little family tale be shared. Stay sexy and keep those toes nimble, Megan. (laughs) (laughs) Who the fuck knew? That is Toe dexterity. Just grabbing at you like a weird little crab. The little little biting turtle snapping at you all the time. To prove his point about spiritualist. God, Houdini was on one. I know what my new hobby is going to be, is getting that toe dexterity down. And then you, when you're doing your Mr. Rogers shoot change. Yeah. That's when you pinch people. Vince, get over here. Snap. Out of the blue. (laughs) Um, Thank you very much, Megan, for sending that in. Because I love a follow-up. I love a follow-up. Yeah. Um, I have a follow-up, actually, that Stephen sent me. Perfect. So Stephen texted me the other day that his friend Carly, who's an armadillo scientist, oh, said, 
dude, Georgia is talking about falling in a cistern in this episode. And that was like a very real hazard I had to be briefed on during my master's. Some of the land I was trapping armadillos on was a wildlife refuge that had old cisterns. We think we know where most of them are at, but there might be more. So watch your step. Oh, cisterns are a very real threat. Wow. And most of us have either never heard of that or Mm -hmm. we think of the ones that are on the top of buildings. Yeah, yeah. Rural areas, gotta gotta watch out for those cisterns and those armadillos, I guess. That's really good, what is the word I'm looking for? Background information or really good kind of like... Yeah. uh, It's not the main thing. It's like information on how to... Secondary information. Detail. Just, that's all I meant. (laughs) The word I was trying to find was detail. Detail. Love it. So I covered the doodler who is a a San Francisco serial killer from the 70s. That was in episode 184. Uh The SFPD just increased the reward for the doodler. So it's been, last Friday was its 49th year. Whoa. As a San Francisco murder case, this guy is a serial killer. He used to go into gay bars. He would sketch people's faces, basically ask them if that was okay, use it as an icebreaker. The two men would leave together and then one of the two men would end up murdered. And that happened over and over. Mm -hmm. And the doodler was never caught. And so basically they're trying to, with an age-progressed picture, try to see if they can get any more information to identify who it is, even if he's, like, to basically to see if they can find him now. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, ERM highlights. On I Saw What You Did, Danielle and Millie have curated an episode in recognition of Black History Month featuring the films Romeo Must Die and Queen of the Damned, both of which star none other than Aaliyah, whose career was cut short upon her death at age 22 in 2001. I covered that tragic story in episode 304. Also, Lady to Lady is live at the SF Sketch Fest this week. That should be really good. A live show at Sketch Fest. You can't beat that. Mm-mm. Kara and Lisa of That's Messed Up and SVU podcast have been on a roll lately. They were recently bartenders on Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen, which is so freaking rad. And on this week's episode of the podcast, Beverly D'Angelo from National Lampoon's Vacation Films and Coal Miner's Daughter is their freaking guest, which is, wow, big. Also, you know, Valentine's Day is just around the corner and my favorite murder cares about you and the gifts that you want to give on that day to whoever and for whatever reason that you want. We have best friend heart pins in the MFM store that say SSDGM on them and you can buy them for your friend if you want to observe Valentine's Day. Maybe call it a thing that's about the two of you specifically, (laughs) like Valentine's Day. Like Valentine's Day, Karen? How can we end this stupid, (laughs) stupid holiday if we keep participating in it? That's the question I want to ask. Valentine's Day or Galentine's Day? Galentine's Day. It's so stupid. (laughs) Come on. Oh, it's a scam. It's a total scam. It's all a scam. It's all a scam. It's like that thing of like, you don't feel bad because you have friends. And it's like, <laughs> well, then what if you don't feel bad, you don't have to launch a counter holiday. Right. That's all. Right. Get right with it. A counterattack. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God, yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could, as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, 
Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant-quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. You're first this week, right? I am first this week. Yeah. All right. I'm going to settle in and listen. This story came from a suggestion that was sent in. So I'm going to read you this email because it's really good. And it included a PDF of a scan of the front of the book they got this story idea from. Thorough. The book says Great Crimes of San Francisco on it. (laughs) Okay, there we go. Can you see that? Yeah, yeah. Old school book. Love it. Classic. Yeah. Um, Pulpy cover. And so it says, Dear Karen, and then immediately in parentheses, it says, I love you, Georgia, but this story suggestion is much more in Karen's wheelhouse. (laughs) It says, on a recent trip to Green Apple Books, fourth generation SF native here, I found the following, and then they say, included a photo, so you get the full understanding of the 70s cover art. And it truly is so beautiful. And then they say, while home with the recent COVID isolation, I read all of it. It's a collection of essays and almost all of the cases were unknown to me. I mean, the phosphorescent bride, yes, please. The one that stopped me in my tracks and which I think would be an excellent tale for MFM is that of Theodore Durant, also known as the demon in the belfry. 
I'll let your researchers do their thing, but this is quite a case. The location is also one of particular bad luck in San Francisco, the Emanuel Baptist Church, which used to be located in the Mission. Do you ever hear that, about that place? No. Me either. Even prior to the Durant case, there were other tales of tragedy involving the church, which I'll tell you about later. Eventually, it was torn down due to the bad feeling it had. <laughs> the bad feeling it had, especially Aww. after the Durant case. It was like, oh, I'm bummed. I'm not doing a good church job. Okay, so anyways, the essay in this book about it is really something, so I scanned it for you. Fairly short and written by Thomas Duke, which you will see in the editor's intro, was a celebrated SFPD captain who wrote a history of great crimes. His tone is very dry and matter-of-fact, considering how horrifying the subject is. Hmm, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Wish the scanner had picked up the proper tone of amber aging of the paper, but we can't have everything. Mm. I tried to look it up if MFM had covered this one before and I couldn't find anything, so I really hope you'll look into it. With all my sincerest best wishes, <laughs> I cannot figure out if, if that truly is sincere or sarcastic. sarcastic. <laughs> I like both. Yeah. With all my sincerest best wishes, Annie Wilson. Lovely. So, right? That's someone who they went and did research and then suggested the story. Oh, it will always take it. I mean, so much respect. So thank you, Annie. And so this week, I'm going to be doing this story of the demon in the belfry. So there's a very thoroughly used article from SF Gate by a writer named Katie Dowd about this topic. There are several San Francisco Examiner articles from the late 1800s. The great website that we've talked about and used as a resource since day one on this podcast, Murder by Gaslight, mm -hmm. Robert Wilhelm's excellent website. There's a 2009 article on that that Marin used. And also I was looking at that website because I hadn't seen it in a while. And I went on there and there, I scanned down and there's an about me page that Robert Wilhelm includes on Murder by Gaslight, his mm -hmm. website. And when you click on the link, it just brings you to a second page that has his name at the top and then two links to websites, one of which is Murder by Gaslight <laughs> and the other is Murder by Gaslight Test. And that's oh. it. That's the only thing that's on his About Me page. So he's like, here's like, here's my name. You already knew that. Here's yeah. the website you're already on. And that's yeah. all the information you get about me. <laughs> what a fucking badass. I like it. It's Irish Catholic level of withholding. And I respect it. Okay. <laughs> also, and then of course, we have to cite the book, The Great Crimes of San Francisco, which is the anthology that Annie Wilson scanned for us and mm -hmm. read and recommended this from. And the rest of the sources are in our show notes if you want to read up on anything. So this story takes place over a century ago in San Francisco during the what what part, what my favorite part of the century? The turn of the century. Ah. That's right. Ah. So just off of Mission Street near 23rd sits Emmanuel Baptist Church. And everybody thinks that this church is cursed because starting in the late 1870s, some really bad things happened kind of in a row. So two of its pastors took their own lives. In 1880, a church leader was convicted for, you might remember when I told the story, the murder of San Francisco Chronicle co-founder Charles D. Young. Yeah. So actually by the early 1880s, there was already a group of locals calling for the Emanuel Baptist Church to be condemned. It didn't happen, but you know, they got into it. They had something to do, and that's good. But then in 1895, like 15 years later, 
there two shocking murders take place inside this church and it makes international headlines. It shakes the community to its core. Two murders carried out not by a deranged, violent outsider from the streets, but by a trusted member of their own congregation, a popular and well-liked man who is considered to be above suspicion. And his arrest reveals something new and terrifying to the public, that the most respected person in your community could also be hiding violent and murderous impulses. So, Theodore Durant is born in 1871 in Toronto, Canada. When he's eight years old in 1879, he moves to San Francisco with his family. They are not wealthy, but Theo's mother is incredibly encouraging. She inspires her children to follow their interests. So Theo's sister grows up to be a famous dancer under the stage name Maud Allen. And Theo seems to have all kinds of potential himself. He's on the pathway to success. He's very smart. He's very handy. People actually really adore him and trust him. He's like everyone's golden boy. Mm -hmm. So... By the time Theo's 23, he's enrolled at Cooper Medical College um, with the hopes of becoming a doctor. He's a member of the California Signal Corps, which at this time is doing things like setting up telephone wire lines for the U.S. Army. And Theo is devoutly religious. When he's not at school or with the Signal Corps, he's usually at Emanuel Baptist Church. And there he's described as, quote, one of the most active members of the congregation, He pitches in with services. He's the superintendent of the Sunday school. He volunteers as the church's handyman, and he leads its youth group. Busy. Yeah, I wrote underneath that in bold caps, over-involvement red flag. Ah, mm mm-hmm. You can do one thing at your church. You don't need to do four. (laughs) If you are running four different departments at your church, you're trying to send a message. Yeah. Okay, so like many other parishioners, Theo's social life is tightly intertwined with the Emmanuel Baptist. He tends to date other members of the church. In early 1885, he's in a steady relationship with a young school teacher named Blanche Lamont, who's also a member of the church's youth group. Blanche is new in town. She moved from Montana a couple months before, and she currently lives near the church with her aunt, Trifenia Noble. Wow, where do these people find their names? I love it. You know where? At the turn of the century. (laughs) They found them, right? At the turn of the century. (laughs) That's where all the great stuff happened. Yeah. So Blanche and Theo are dating pretty seriously. And then three months after they first start going out, Theo proposes. But then Blanche finds out that he had just recently proposed to another parishioner named Flo Upton. So she turns down his proposal and she basically breaks up with him until a few weeks later when they start hanging out again. Mm -hmm. So on the morning of April 3rd, 1895, Theo picks Blanche up from Trifenia's house. They take the trolley to her cooking class. She gets off at the cooking class. Theo heads to Cooper Medical College. He stays there till around 2 p.m. Then after that, he heads back to Blanche's class to pick her up. So as he's hanging around the trolley stop waiting for Blanche to get out of her cooking class, he's pacing, he is visibly nervous. So much so that a woman named Mary Vogel, who is looking out the window from across the street, Mm -hmm. can't stop watching him. And according to an old newspaper articles, she even grabs a pair of opera glasses (laughs) to look out at him to like get a good look at what this young man is doing. (laughs) Wow. 
Mary Vogel. She's on the case. So that area had seen some break-ins recently. So Mary basically looks at this guy and decides to commit his face to memory because mm-hmm. she's uh, she's all about it. She's like, I know, this guy seems suspicious. So about a half hour passes and sometime around 3 p.m., Blanche exits the building where she has taken her cooking class. She finds Theo. They board a trolley car together. Multiple people spot them on board, including a woman named Elizabeth Crockett, whose son is close friends with Theo. She's sitting directly across from the two young people. But weirdly, Theo doesn't acknowledge her, just pretend she's not there. Hmm. Elizabeth thinks this is strange because she knows him well. But then she decides he's distracted by his pretty date. He doesn't want to talk to her. That's fine. It's, you know. So then a little after 4 p.m., Theo and Blanche get off the trolley near Emmanuel Baptist. So as they approach the church, even more people see them. So there had been rumors going around that young people were using the church for impure reasons. So there's a lot of people that kind of had their eye out for kids like necking in the in the church, you know. Sure. In the, in the walkway or whatever. One of the people, basically a bunch of people are just kind of paying attention to what's going on around the church. And one of those people is a man named Martin Quinlan. He's walking by. He knows Theo personally also. Then there's a woman who also lives across the street from the church. Her name's Caroline Leake. And she sees them through her front window. And she watches as he leads the young woman he's with, who she will later identify as Blanche Lamont, inside the church. So after that, they don't know what happens. Um, Basically, an hour later, around 5 p.m. that night, the Emmanuel Baptist organist, a man named George King, shows up to rehearse for Sunday service. But just after he set up his sheet music and started to practice, he hears a booming sound behind him. He spins around to investigate. He sees it's the door that leads up the long stairwell to the belfry. And that's the room that's all the way at the top of the church's spire. George watches as Theo stumbles down the stairs, looking, quote, deathly white with bloodshot eyes. So Theo's trying to catch his breath, and he slumps into a nearby chair. So George checks on him. He tells George he was fixing a gas leak in the church, then that it nearly killed him. Mm. So George has no reason to question this. Theo's the handyman for the church. He knows this man very well, he believes. He's a member of the congregation. So, of course, he's what he's saying is the truth. So when Theo asks George to run to a nearby pharmacy and get him some seltzer, George doesn't hesitate. But then along the way, he realizes he didn't smell any gas in the church. So if there was Mm. a gas leak... Like, that's odd because there was no smell of gas. But then he just, you know, just it's just a passing thought. He gets yeah. back to the church. Now Theo seems to be in much better shape, takes the seltzer. And then just a few hours after that, Theo shows up at a prayer meeting hosted at a parishioner's house not far from the church. And he takes a seat right behind Trophenia, who's Blanche's aunt, And Trophenia is sitting there waiting for her niece to join her at this prayer meeting. The meeting begins. Blanche is nowhere to be found. And her her aunt is immediately worried. So she only gets more concerned when Theo leans over and asks her where Blanche is. Hmm. She tells Theo she's not sure. And he says, quote, I regret that she's not with us tonight as I have a book for her, but I'll send it to the house. So the next day, 
Aunt Trefinia reports Blanche missing. The police are immediately on the case, but for some weird reason, Theo is not even on their radar. So he was the last person to be seen with Blanche by multiple people, yet he's never interrogated um, about how he spent that day or treated really with any suspicion at all. Hmm. Because again, no one can imagine this golden boy and this, you know, such an upstanding member of this church right. could have anything to do with a missing girl. And in fact, Blanche's family is adamant that if Theo says he doesn't know where Blanche is, then he is absolutely telling the truth. So basically no one, no one's even thinking of this guy. But of course, Theo himself, as because we will later learn that he is either a socio or probably a psychopath, mm -hmm. he inserts himself into the investigation. When Blanche has been missing for a couple of days, he starts making all sorts of ridiculous claims. He tells um, Aunt Trefinia that he'd heard that Blanche had, quote, not departed from this life, but worse, she had departed from the life of morality and she was in a house of ill repute. So he's basically telling the aunt who's freaking out about her missing niece that she went and became a sex worker. Right. Aunt Trefinia does not buy this for a second and basically dismisses Theo's, you know, talk as a cruel rumor. So the big, the first big update in Blanche's missing person case comes on April 13th, 10 days into the investigation. So that afternoon... Trefinia receives a package in the mail that's addressed to her home, but the name is labeled George King. So it's her address, but George King's name on the front of the package. Mm -hmm. That's the organist. So Got Trefinia it. notes <laughs> that the writing on the package seems purposefully illegible. When she opens it, she's shocked to find three rings that Blanche wore every day and definitely on the day that she went missing. Mm -hmm. So Trefinia immediately calls the police. They pick up the rings. They take them around to area pawn shops. And soon they find a pawnbroker who recognizes them. He says that a man had recently stopped in trying to sell the rings, but the broker decided to pass on them. And so he gives police a basic description of the man, but it's not particularly detailed or really very helpful. 8 p.m. the night before, Trefinia got that package. Mm -hmm. Theo is spotted once again by numerous people. This time he's standing outside of Emmanuel Baptist with a fellow parishioner, 21-year-old Minnie Williams. Like Theo and Blanche, she's well-liked, she's popular, she's a fixture in the church's social scene. And among the many people who see Minnie and Theo together um, is a man named Alexander Zengner, whose wife is a member of the church. He knows both Theo and Minnie personally. He's also heard the rumors about young couples hooking up at the church. So he makes a mental note of the pair. But to him, he will later say this did not come off as a romantic meeting. Theo and Minnie are locked in an intense and very serious conversation. Zenger believes that it looks like they're arguing. Hmm. That's the thing that stands out to him is he he was like, oh, wait, they're, that's not what they're doing. Oh, no, they're not doing that at all. Yeah. So after a few minutes of that intense conversation, they walk into the church together. And then when Zenger walks by the church again an hour later on his way back, he sees Theo leave Emmanuel Baptist alone. So Zenger, who still has a little suspicion that the two young people are up to no good, notes that this is just a little bit strange that he's by himself. Mm -hmm. So then a half an hour after that, Theo arrives at a nearby house for a youth group meeting. 
he was supposed to be there at 7.30 and now it's 9.30. Oh dear. So everybody notices how late he is. They notice that, quote, his hair was somewhat must, perspiration was on his forehead, and his hands were enough soiled that he asked the host for permission to wash them. And he also was holding a venti Starbucks. He was late. He was late. <laughs> but he had time to stop at Starbucks and didn't ask if anyone wanted anything. Uh, this is how selfish this bastard is. So, but other than that, of course, he is his normal cheery self. And everyone's just like, oh, our boy. He's just, he got, he's running behind. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Minnie is also a member of this youth group. And she is also supposed to be there. But she never arrives and she never calls to explain her absence. So this meeting wraps up around 11.30 p.m. A small group leaves together and starts walking home, including Theo. But instead of heading directly to his house, he breaks off not far from the church and waves goodbye and vanishes into the night. So the next morning is the Saturday before Easter. And a group of young women arrive at Emmanuel Baptist to prepare the church for the holiday services. It's going to be busy because, of course, Easter season, it brings all the cafeteria Catholics out who feel (laughs) guilty. Oh, wait, this is a Baptist church. That doesn't apply. (laughs) So, but anyway, everybody starts coming around Easter, right? You come like three weeks before, confess your sins. You're all clean for the rest of the year. Yeah. So basically, they're getting ready they have to put out like, you know, they're decorating the church with flowers, they're cleaning up, but they also have to go to a faraway storage closet because they need to put out extra prayer books. Mm -hmm. But when one of them opens up this storage closet door, it reveals a dead mutilated body sprawled Mm. out on the closet floor. Oh my God. Police, of course, soon arrive at the scene. Now, you have to think about this. This is 1895. This mm-hmm. is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And this is like when women basically got married, had kids, and made dinner. Like going yeah. to church and handing out prayer books was like a big deal. Yeah. And this is like the to suddenly be exposed to vicious murder. Yeah. And be a witness to that must have been just absolutely horrifying. Yeah. I can't imagine. In a church, I mean, yeah. that's like, oh my God, that's like the world has turned on its ear. So the police arrive almost immediately on scene. They actually assume this is Blanche Lamont's body because, you know, she's the one that they've been investigating and that, that's been missing. Mm-hmm. But a member of the church quickly identifies this is Minnie Williams. So Minnie's murder, and this part is very upsetting. If anybody gets really upset about murder details, this is a very bad bunch of information that you're about to hear. This murder was extremely violent. This closet, it's like a storage closet. It's covered in blood. Some of the blood will be later determined to have been, quote, thrown in handfuls onto the walls. What? Oh my God. Yeah. It's like nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. Minnie's been stabbed multiple times with a knife from the church's kitchen, and she was attacked with such force that the knife blade was broken off into her chest. Mm. Her wrists and forehead have been slashed. She was gagged with her own underwear. They had been stuffed far down her throat. She was raped, and she was strangled. And when the police search the church for any leads or evidence, they don't really find anything except they find Blanche Lamont's library card lying nearby the murder scene. Mm. But they don't understand the relevance yet. 
So now Theo Durant is looking very suspicious. They suddenly are like, wait a second, this guy is kind of in the mix here. Multiple eyewitnesses tell police that they saw him with Minnie outside the church the night before her body was found. Police think Theo makes sense for this crime, being that he's a fixture at the church. They theorize Minnie's killer must know like the layout of the church very well because not only did he think to grab a knife from its kitchen, but he also knew that that kind of faraway storage closet was there to put Minnie's body in. Mm -hmm. And had it not been Easter weekend, the body probably wouldn't have been found so quickly. Right. So police get a search warrant. They go to Theo's house. He is out of town on a trip to Mount Diablo with the Signal Corps, but the police search his home anyway. They don't find any blood on his clothes, but in his coat pocket, they find Minnie Williams' purse. The cops are starting to feel confident that they're putting together like kind of a a slam dunk case here. Mm -hmm. And then they learn about Theo's connection to Blanche Lamont. They start thinking back to the library card um, at the murder scene, and it dawns on them that they need to conduct another much more thorough search of the property. And this time, the church is checked top to bottom, but the police don't find anything until they reach the belfry. So this takes some work. The door to the belfry's stairwell is missing its knobs. No one knows why, but they are. So the officers have to kick the door down, and then they have to use candles to light their way up from the picture that's drawn that's from the book. Mm -hmm. It looks like it's seven stories of stairs to get up to the belfry. Yeah, six or seven flights. So, of course, the stairwell is cold and dark. It leads you up into this tiny room in the spire of the church that's also cold and dark. They get inside, they lift the candles, and in the far corner of the room, they find Blanche Lamont's dead body. Mm. And unlike when Minnie was found, there's no blood anywhere in this church spire. And Blanche has been carefully positioned. She's naked. Her arms are crossed over her chest. Her head is propped on a block of wood. And because the belfry is so cold, it's actually slowed down the process of decomposition. So Blanche is ghostly white, Mm. which must have been so freaky to hold up a candle and see that in the corner. I just feel bad for these people They don't have any, like, we're sitting here watching Netflix shit and being, like, becoming accustomed to this reality. This is the first time they're learning what serial killers do and are like. Yeah, definitely. In a church belfry. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. So when the autopsy is performed, it's determined that, like Minnie, Blanche was raped and died by strangulation, also connecting those two murders The final connection, they were both 21 years old. Mm -hmm. So the same day that Blanche's body is discovered, Theo comes back from that signal court trip and he is arrested the minute he sets foot in San Francisco. He denies any involvement in either woman's death. When he's interviewed by police, he tries to explain away the damning evidence against him, saying that he found Minnie's purse on the street and he just hadn't had a chance to return it to her yet. He also denies seeing Blanche Lamont the day she went missing, which of course is contradicted by the many, many eyewitnesses who saw the two together. And then on the advice of his attorneys, Theo stopped speaking with investigators altogether. So of course, Theo Durant's friends and family are absolutely stunned. He is the last person anyone would suspect of murder. But then 
the police start hearing stories that they no one's ever heard before, and they're stories of Theo's predatory side. Oh, dear. It turns out many young women, all from Emmanuel Baptist Church, now feel free to come forward with allegations of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and sexual misconduct against Theo. One woman says that he'd exposed himself to her in the church library, Another said that he'd once offered to do a, quote, physical examination on her at the church to show off what he was learning in medical school. Oh. Yeah. In both cases, the women declined Theo's advances and, of course, were left disturbed and shaken. But probably because of his status in the church, they didn't feel like they could say anything or do anything. Investigators also learned Theo not only proposed to a woman named Flo Upton right before he proposed to Blanche, But, big reveal, but not a surprise, he'd also been dating Minnie Williams at the exact same time as all of that was going on. Hmm. Minnie had actually complained to her friends that she was in a love triangle and she felt just strung along and used by Theo and his hot and cold behavior. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good thing to remember. Like, if somebody is, like, leaving you on red, if they don't seem interested, if they're, like, love bombing you and disappearing and stuff... Mm -hmm there's a good chance that they are a serial killer (laughs) within their own church. And that's why you don't have to be upset about it because it happens. It has happened. It has happened. It has happened in the past. It can happen in the turn of the century. It can happen in any time is what we learned. The greatest time, the turn of the century, of course, it's going to happen in 2023. It's just, you know, that's just a tip for detachment. A little, just a tip. (laughs) So Theodore Durant is charged with the homicides of Blanche Lamont and Minnie Williams. And the first trial is Blanche Lamont's murder trial. It begins on July 22nd, 1895. It is a total circus. The courtroom's packed, of course, with like onlookers, reporters. The newspapers print detailed updates every single day on the case. Mm. And prosecutors set up a mannequin wearing the dress Blanche had on when she went missing. And it strangely starts to feel like Blanche herself is in the courtroom. Mm. It's a dramatic, shocking trial. The state paints Theo as a sexually motivated killer who hid under the flimsy cover of being a quote-unquote good citizen. They suggest that Theo strangled Blanche in the library before hiding her body in the belfry shortly before he was interrupted by church organist George King. The prosecutors also guessed that Theo strangled Minnie in the church's library, put her body in the closet, and left the scene to attend the youth group meeting. It's not just uh, the kind of violence that people, like societal violence that people are used to. This is that kind of thing of the guy, it's a classic serial killer thing. It's like, I just murdered someone, now I'm going to go study the Bible with you. Totally. Calculate, calculate it and... Sinister, yeah. And then after that youth group meeting, he returned to the church, intending to move Minnie's body up the belfry alongside Blanche. But prosecutors allege that he ran into some trouble when the belfry's door didn't have his knob, so he couldn't Hmm. move it. And so instead, in a frenzied, frantic state, he went back to the closet, took off his own clothes, and mutilated Minnie's body. Oh, my God. They think this explains how he was able to leave the scene without any blood on his clothes or shoes. Mm -hmm. And also the thing about Minnie's coagulated blood being on those closet walls that in it looked like it was thrown. (sighs) It was thrown like a while later. So just horrifying. Oh my God. 
Just he was an animal. Over 50 witnesses testify for the prosecution, including many eyewitnesses who saw Theo with either Blanche or Minnie before their deaths. Even the pawnbroker testifies, the same man that when the police first questioned him, he couldn't really give a detailed description of who brought Blanche's rings in. Mm-hmm or maybe he didn't want to give a description, then he finds out who did it and what he did. Now he's in the courtroom pointing to Theodore Durant going, it was without question him. Basically, in the defense's futile attempt at damage control, they claim that every single witness is mistaken (laughs) and that they simply have Theo mixed up with someone else. And so for the rest of the trial, they basically struggle to build a solid defense for their client but they can't find any classmates who can corroborate his alibi of being at school that day, uh, right. the day of Blanche's murder. And of course, he doesn't do himself any favors. The website Murder by Gaslight says that Theo's testimony, quote, probably clinched the verdict. He parsed his sentences carefully and complained often of being misquoted, but ultimately his testimony was contradictory and misleading. So as the trial progresses, a central mystery remains what the motive of these murders is. And the closest hint comes from a man named Clark Morgan's testimony, who was a close family friend of Minnie's. He knew a lot about her social life, including that she'd gone on several dates with Theo. And he also knew that Theo had tried to pressure Minnie into having sex with him. And Minnie had been deeply offended by this improper proposal. And so this boosts the prosecutor's theory that the murders were sexually motivated and that Theo might have killed Minnie for rejecting his sexual advances and might have killed Blanche for rejecting his proposal. Mm-hmm. So as the trial wraps up, the state's convinced that they have a slam dunk case and they're right about that. The jury deliberates for five minutes. <sighs> And then returns their verdict. Theodore Durant, now known across San Francisco as the demon of the Belfry, is found guilty of murder. So Theodore is brought to the gallows on the morning of January 7th, 1898. Hundreds of people show up hoping to hear him confess. He never does. Instead, his final speech... I'm sorry, this is my favorite. This is one of my favorite factoids I may have maybe have ever read. Okay. Instead, in a final speech before his execution, Theo begins to ramble about a huge conspiracy against him. He says, quote, this crime was fastened on me by the press of San Francisco, but I forgive all. It is they who have forever blackened the fair name of California. And then when Theo takes a short pause mid-speech, the executioner drops the <gasps> trap door. Holy shit. Sorry. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. Like, he's fucking like a classic sociopath or psychopath where they're up there. It took five minutes for a jury of your peers to be like, this guy absolutely horribly murdered these two women in a church. Yeah. And he's like, I am going to talk about the and the the executioner's like, bye. All right, dude. We're done (laughs) listening to your fucking bullshit. To this day, people are still mulling over Theo's motive. Some have wondered if he was dealing with untreated mental illness. Still doesn't justify murder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Others think that Theo was left brain damaged because of a nearly fatal case of meningitis that he had once had. Of course, ultimately, we'll never know why. But as writer Stephen G. Christensen points out, 
Theodore Durant's trial showed the public that, quote, people of apparently good character with no prior history of violence can commit bizarre, brutal crimes for no rational reason. Mm-hmm. So as for Emmanuel Baptist Church, of course, these murders are kind of it for the church. Yeah. They prove basically the rumor that the church is cursed. It does stand for two more decades. I don't think it's easy to get a church demolished, but right. in 1915, it finally is demolished. Wow. And that is the story of Theodore Durant, San Francisco's demon of the belfry. Wow, I had never heard of that somehow. I haven't either. That's wild. Like the murder details are so horrifying and yeah. so intense. And he did it in a church. Yeah, twice to two twice. young women. Twice. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. All right. So today, Karen, I'm I'm also in the 1800s. Hey. For you. What's up? Is it the late 1800s, close to the turn of the century? Yeah, very close. (gasps) Then I'm going to pay extra attention. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you wouldn't. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to get my opera glasses and look out my window at you. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) Today, I'm going to tell you the story of the ghost ship, the Mary Celeste. Oh, hell yes. You ready for a ghost ship story? Yes, I am. (laughs) Yes, I am. Mm, Okay. The main sources I use in today's story are a Smithsonian article by Jess Bloomberg, a Britannica entry by Amy Chekinen, and a Museum Hack article by Alex Johnson, and the rest of the sources you can find in the show notes. Okay, so here we are on December 5th, 1872. Mm-hmm. So... A ship called the DeGradia is sailing across the Atlantic to deliver petroleum from the United States to Italy. Super routine voyage for the ship's captain. His name's David Morehouse. And everything has been going smoothly as they approach the coast of Europe near Portugal. Mm-hmm. You know, picture your ma- that map that you have in your mind's eye. At about 1 p.m., Captain Morehouse comes out onto the deck when the man steering the boat cries out. He sees something on the open water on the horizon. It's a ship sailing in an erratic, directionless way. And Captain Morehouse orders the crew to head towards this mysterious ship. (laughs) They get closer and Captain Morehouse starts to feel like something is horribly wrong. Wait, sorry. I need to ask you a question. You're Captain Morehouse. Yeah. Staring at what I would imagine to be like sails aflutter. 
Yeah. Right? It's kind of sideways. Drifting. Looks kind of shitty. Maybe there's holes in the sails or something. There's something to indicate. Yeah. Right? That this is sailing weirdly. Right. And like, is that a trap? Is that pirates maybe trying to trap you? We don't know. Yeah, that's right. Could be that. But it's bad vibes. Yeah. You know, as the captain, you're going to have to go ahead and board that ship. Well, except that he... Makes two other people go board first. Oh, dirty bird. <laughs> okay. The sails on this mysterious ship have been only partially set, which is highly unusual. You got the sail part weird, right? Okay. Even though the Del Gradio is sending signals, there's no response from this other ship. And as the two ships get closer, they realize they know this ship. The ship is the Mary Celeste. Uh-oh. The Mary Celeste set sail just eight days before the Del Gradia with both ships leaving from ports near New York City. So I think all ships are like bros. You know what I mean? Like all, all they, everyone knows everyone else's schedule. <laughs> they're like they're like dudes that are all parked in a circle at the Ross yeah. parking lot. Yeah, where are you going? Hey, yeah. where are you going? They're kind of smoking and listening to house music all at the same time and then they all take off. <laughs> like the, the coffee bean in Los Feliz or there's just Yo. like always people hanging out in the parking lot there. Yeah. Those are the guys that I said I missed most in quarantine was the just guys that hang out cigarettes. near the coffee bean because they just have like, they have the most perfect Adidas sweatsuits, right? Yeah. And their cars are always like super fancy cars. They're fancy. They're very low to the ground. There's like, there's all kinds of accoutrement on the car. Mm -hmm. They don't spill their coffee on their sweatsuits ever. (laughs) They tell me the world is right and in its place. It's a good scene. Yeah. Check that out after you go to El Coyote when you visit Los Angeles. (laughs) Guys, I don't know why we're talking about this. My thing is the way... And I think I got this from, because my dad made me watch a bunch of kind of sea captain-y type of movies when I went home over Christmas. Oh, yeah. Like Mutiny on the Bounty and stuff Uh like that. And the way they are so hyper-organized on their ships, like they have whole systems to keep the sails in place for the right. Right. Heave ho and all that. No one's ever letting the mainsail just kind of slap around if it feels like it. That's <laughs> no. my thing. That's scary. This whole thing also made me think of Our Flag Means Death, one of yeah. the best TV shows of the past <laughs> decade, in my opinion, that came yeah. out last year. It just I kept picturing those characters yes. coming across a fucking ghost ship, you know? My whole point of asking you that question is like the idea that you would even have to interact with ghost ships as a ship's captain must have no. been so horrifying. Okay. Yes, exactly. They can't see anyone on deck, so Morehouse sends two of his crew members over in a rowboat. Hey, guys, get over in the rowboat. Guys, you love exploring. (laughs) Get in there. But I guess it makes sense. Like, if he goes and there's something that happens and he gets killed first, then there's no captain on the boat. Must be nice to have that excuse, you know? (laughs) It can't be me. You guys, it can't be me. It can't. It can't be me. I'm the only one. I'm the only one. We can't lose me. We got to lose you. So imagine these two guys have to go over on this rowboat, go over to the Mary Celeste, the spooky ship that they've all sighted, and find out what the fuck's going on. So the two men explore the ship's interior and exterior, the cargo hold and the galley and the personal quarters of all the sailors, but no one, there's not anyone on board. The Mary Celeste is totally deserted. There are no clear signs of foul play, like there's no evidence of a fire or blood. They find that the ship has taken on some water in the cargo hold, but not so much that it would damage the ship or cargo. So not Mm. enough to make people abandon the ship. They discover six months worth of food and water still on the boat. 
And the only signs of anything unusual are some loose hatch covers on the deck that would normally be secured and a device that's used for measuring water in the cargo hold that's been left on the deck. And there's a disassembled pump lying around. So maybe the pump they were going to use for that water that was coming aboard, it was disassembled. Okay. And most importantly, the ship's only lifeboat is gone. Mm. So the crew members from the Del Gradia find the ship's log. The last entry is from 5 a.m. on November 25th, which is almost 10 days before the Mary Celeste is spotted by the Del Gradia. Okay. The ship has floated almost 500 miles since its last log entry. So it's just been floating out in the open sea. Shit. The crew, including seven sailors, the captain, his wife, and their two-year-old daughter are never seen or heard from again. Oh my God. So let's go back to the origin story of the Mary Mary Celeste. The ship was built in Spencer Islands, Nova Scotia, Canada in 1860. Uh, So middle of the century, I guess. Not your favorite time, but it's... I mean, I'm interested. I'm listening for sure, (laughs) but I'm not engaged. (laughs) Originally called the Amazon, the ship's maiden voyage was supposed to deliver lumber from Canada to London in June of 1861, but the ship's first captain gets mysteriously sick as the ship starts sailing, eventually getting so sick that the boat has to turn around. And this first captain eventually dies as they return to Spencer's Island. Of what? I don't know. Sick? Seasickness? I don't know. <laughs> See, he's so nauseated. He dies. <laughs> Oops. He's like, shoot, I should have thought this through. I should have got some Dramamine before I boarded this. I'm writing down some of these details. Are you? Yeah. Because, Why? well, because I've always heard of this story, but I've okay. never known the details of the story. So I want to do like, I want my own theory by the time you're done. Oh, great. The second captain takes over, but mishaps with the journey continue. The Amazon actually runs into and sinks another ship in the English Channel on that same trip. So is this Mary Celeste cursed, maybe? Mm. The ship has some quiet years after that, traveling around the world, delivering cargo. It runs aground during a storm and is so badly damaged that the owner just abandons it there. The shipwreck is sold, rebuilt, expanded, upgraded, and renamed the Mary Celeste. So it's like, it's built on the back of an unlucky ship, which can't be good luck. No, especially in the world of seafarers and the maritime world, which is very... Right. They get real into those kinds of curses and bad luck things. Like changing the name of a boat and stuff, right? You can't do that? I think so. Okay, I'm going to go with that. It ends up in a port in New York in 1872. That October, the ship is ready to make its first journey post-makeover. And this time, (laughs) it will be captained by a guy named Benjamin Briggs. Okay, so that happens. Then Then now we're back at the voyage at the center of our story. So then on November 7th, 1872, Captain Benjamin Briggs and his hand-picked crew of seven capable sailors depart from New York Harbor on the Mary Celeste. They're carrying a cargo of 1,701 barrels of industrial (laughs) alcohol across the Atlantic to Genoa, Italy. And also on board for the journey are the captain's wife, Sarah, and their two-year-old daughter, Sophia. Mm. And there's photos of them, too. Captain Briggs is a very experienced seaman who has crossed the ocean many times, though this is his first time sailing the Mary Celeste. He actually has invested his life savings into a share of the Mary Celeste, so he's part owner as well. He's excited to share this 
beautiful boat and his love of seafaring with his family. The only person that's not with them is their seven-year-old son, Arthur. He's left at home uh, in Massachusetts so he can attend school, which ultimately saves his life. Mm. School saves someone's life. It happens. It can happen. It can happen. So they set sail on the transatlantic journey that should take just a few weeks. But according to the abandoned book log, the Mary Celeste spends the first two weeks of the trip navigating horrible weather, high winds, constant rain, probably a lot of seasickness, I'm going to guess. Not fun. It's slow going, but Captain Briggs' last entry in his journal says that the sky had cleared now and that they had almost reached the European coast. He wrote that they could even see land. So how did Mary Celeste wind up close to 500 miles away, off course and abandoned? What happened to the Briggs family and the seven sailors? Okay, so back to the Del Gradia and the discovery of the ghost ship. Captain Morehouse decides to tow the Mary Celeste to Gibraltar. So this is not an easy task, towing the Mary Celeste to Gibraltar. Morehouse has to divide his crew into two in order to sail the two ships, which slowed them down considerably. Morehouse is concerned about the fate of the lost crew, of course, but also turns out salvaging boats is a very lucrative business. So he's not mm-hmm. doing it out of the kindness of his heart and to solve a mystery. He's like, empty boat, come with me. Right. He stands to make a lot of money off the Mary Celeste. And so when the two ships arrive at Gibraltar, Morehouse follows protocol for salvage ships and turns the Mary Celeste into the British court operating there. And the official investigation begins. And immediately, the British court's like, this has to be foul play. Oh. The attorney general leading the investigation is very suspicious. Mm-hmm. One idea is that the crew of the Del Gradia might have murdered the crew of the Mary Celeste themselves. Shit. So we were going on their word this whole time. And then clean up the crime scene in order to cash the boat in for the salvage reward. That seems a little extreme. Like, that's pirate moves that then you're trying to take back to, like, the man. Right. And be like, can I get my check? And right. it's like, for that, no. Yeah, because then everyone would do that. It makes much more sense to be like, oh, this was this boat was abandoned. Yeah. So it's never pr- this is never proven this theory and no criminal charges were ever ever filed. However, because they were suspects, Captain Morehouse and the crew of the Del Gradia are awarded way less money than what they're entitled to. So there is a lot of suspicion around it. Mm. They only get 1700 pounds and usually salvagers can get two or three times that amount because of how difficult and dangerous it can be to tow a ship in. So it doesn't seem like they're ever totally cleared of any wrongdoing. Interesting. Yeah. So here's some theories. And then we'll go to Karen's theory. (laughs) Okay, good. You're taking notes? Good. Uh, Yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of theories, of course, about what happened to the Mary Celeste. And they range from scientific to supernatural, pirates, mutiny, ghosts. I'm not ghosts. Over the years, fact and... (laughs) You just threw ghosts in accidentally. I I did. Could have been. You never know. You don't ever know. Over the years, fact and fiction have gotten twisted in the case and it can be hard to figure out what's true and what is like lore. Magazines and newspapers repeatedly sensationalized the details over the decades, creating a long game of basically like playing telephone where the original facts are so distorted, they become unrecognizable today. That's what we love to do as human beings. We love to repeat this podcast. Yes, it's this podcast. It's kind of every podcast. It is. Repeat stories, find out later that your source material was perhaps 
Right. Sourced poorly in some way. I mean, that is... And also, the idea of, like, you came upon this ship, I immediately was, like, so freaked out. And it's just, yeah. like, it is ghosts on that Chills. ship. And it's, like... That's yeah. right. When it's not interesting enough, add ghosts into the yeah. mix. You know? It works. It, it works. So, famously, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, your favorite author, and Woo! the author of Sherlock Holmes writes a fictional short story about the Mary Celeste in 1873. He takes license, he inverts details, but it's close enough to the real story that people start to confuse his fiction with actual journalism. Yeah. Again, podcasting. Again, this podcast specifically. (laughs) Doyle's version theorizes that one of the sailors goes on a murderous rampage and hijacks the ship, but there's one crew member who is spared because he has a magic amulet And this short story is a total success. It's widely read and ignites new interest in the Mary Celeste that lasts for over a century. Can I just say really quick, you don't need a UFO abduction. You're on the sea. You might as well be in outer space. It's so unexplored, so unknown. You are out in a completely alien world when you are at sea. And things happen out there that no one ever witnesses. That brings us to sea monsters. Yay! The idea of a sea monster attacking the ship could have happened, depending on your definition of a sea monster. Giant squid can grow up to 40 feet long, and there is evidence that they have attacked sailors for centuries. Yep. Also very smart. These real sightings and attacks have led to the mythology of creatures like the kraken. Realistically, though, giant squids are terrifying, but would be unable to, I think, pick off 10 people individually from a ship. No. Right? Um, Maybe they could knock one or two people off the Mary Celeste, but not be like, yoink, yoink, unless they did it all at once in like a big bear hug. I don't know. Or they pulled the whole ship down and then it bounced back up. That seems... They pulled it to the side. But then how would the lifeboat... The lifeboat was gone, which is really weird. Yes, and also, I don't think a 40-foot squid still... Those ships are 200 feet long, aren't they? They're big. I don't have the measurements. Well, I'm just saying comparatively. Yes, they are, yeah. I don't know. I agree. And like some, yeah, exactly. I don't think so. So there's also the theory that this was some kind of accident. What? Sorry, it just, we're tr- I'm trying to put together a theory with no actual knowledge. Of, Again, of like where I'm just like, my favorite murder. It can't, it can't be a Kraken if the Kraken's only 40 feet long. And then I just make up the number that I think the ship is feet long. Someone would have run downstairs and closed the latch. Like someone would have survived that. Exactly. Yes. When a big squid first started putting his tentacles over. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. I'm going to theorize to myself from now on. (laughs) I wish you wouldn't. (laughs) Okay, there's also the accident theory. Some have theorized that Briggs ordered the crew into the lifeboat as a temporary measure. Maybe something on board was dangerous enough for them to evacuate, but the plan was to return when the danger passed. And the thought is that maybe the rope connecting the lifeboat to the deck got cut accidentally, meaning the crew was unable to return to the ship and instead just floated away. Mm. Just so fucking scary. Horrifying. One of the possible onboard dangers was the cargo itself. Some researchers think that the almost 2,000 barrels of alcohol on board might have caused a small explosion in the cargo hold, prompting Briggs to worry that the ship might explode or take on so much water that she would sink. And because alcohol releases vapors and there was so much of it, it's possible the alcohol fumes caused one of the hatches to blow off, starting a panic, which sucks. Another possibility is that it's natural phenomenon, 
it's like something happening in the ocean itself that might have prompted an emergency evacuation situation on board. And this is when it starts to remind me of one of the skiers called the Dolotov Pass story. Briggs was known to be an expert sailor, so researchers agree that if Briggs ordered his crew to abandon ship, there must have been something really dangerous going on and real. Something that a water spout might have struck the ship. What's a water spout? It's a tornado that forms over water. And though it's typically less strong than land tornadoes, they can still damage a ship's rigging and cause the ship to take on water. Yep. Right? Hell yeah. Okay, so after the mysterious disappearance of the crew, no one wants anything to do with the Mary Celeste. The boat is returned to New York, but sits rotting in a harbor for years. Finally, the boat is sold at a loss in 1874 and under new ownership set sail as a merchant ship. But in 1879, another captain of the Mary Celeste gets mysteriously sick and dies again. What? Making it the third captain of the ship to die prematurely. This seals the fate of the ship in the public eye. Everyone believes the Mary Celeste is cursed. The ship keeps getting sold and each new owner struggles to make a profit. Who would buy it after the (laughs) third captain dies? Who is the money man that's like, no, no, no. Here we go. Watch this. (laughs) This time, baby. (laughs) I got that feeling. Then in November 1884, so we're getting closer, the last captain of the Mary Celeste conspires with a group of Boston merchants to commit large-scale insurance fraud. Great. They fill the Mary Celeste up with useless cargo, but list it as being really valuable. This is, you know, tale as old as time. They take out a huge insurance policy on it. Then they crash the Mary Celeste on a reef in Haiti, hoping to receive a big insurance payout. They're caught almost immediately. Criminal charges are brought against them. And this last captain's reputation is ruined. And he dies mysteriously within three months of the charges being dropped against him. Wow. Because there wasn't enough evidence. And another kills himself all because of the insurance fraud situation. So more bad news with the Mary Celeste. Wow. This is now even more proof to everyone that the Mary Celeste is cursed. The boat continues to be written about sensationally in major news publications for decades, but the physical wreckage of the ship is forgotten on that Haitian reef and is never salvaged. And the Mary Celeste slowly falls apart and disappears into the sea. (gasps) Ooh. Yeah. So Brian Hicks, a contemporary author who has written extensively about the Mary Celeste, I'll just end on a quote that he says... Quote, there has never been a clear consensus on any scenario. It is a mystery that has tormented countless people, including the families of the lost sailors and hundreds of others who have tried in vain to solve the riddle. The ghost ship may be the best example of the old proverb that the sea never gives up its secrets. Yeah. And that is the story of the ghost ship, the Mary Celeste. Now solve it for us, Karen. Solve it. I'm ready. Solve it. Are you ready? Here it is. So if you're feeling uncomfortable by that finale, thinking, hey, that's too many possibilities. First of all, I'm haunted by the image that the Mary Celeste was intentionally crashed on a reef in Haiti and then just sat there as this cursed Mm -hmm. ship. So like, did anybody swim down and get the... Probably, right? This part and then that thing was cursed. I mean... Oh, yeah. yeah. But here's my thing. What if... And I think I'm getting this from something else I've seen on TV. But what if, say, for example, 
the fumes from all that alcohol yes. actually started affecting the judgment of the people on the ship. Yeah, it drove them mad. Yes. And like, I don't know why it would drive them mad per se, but it was some combination that was super strong or it was getting into like their cabins because it's kind of small spaces, right? Yeah. And so if it's like sneaking in and poisoning them somehow in a way, almost like ergot poisoning Mm -hmm. where people just start going crazy, but it's just bread. So no one knows what's Mm. happening. It's a similar thing like that where they're like, we have to get out, you know, they're hallucinating or something. Yeah, because there was water at the bottom. So they like overestimated how much water it was taking on because they were going mad. Maybe. Yeah, I like that. It's either that or it is like a rogue wave in that way where it just hit the ship. Yeah, it made people go off the ship, then spat the ship back out. It yeah. was just like there. That makes sense too. If they were on that lifeboat, why didn't they end up anywhere? Like, why didn't they, why totally. weren't they found? Totally. Anywhere nearby. Yeah. Like sticking around nearby. Yeah. Because they're close to land, right? Yeah. Yeah. They could see land. Yeah. Did that theory do it for you? <laughs> I guess it- I think uh, the Smithsonian needs to call you and award you. I'll be like, guys, I need to make some measurements real quick and I'll call you back when I get my solid numbers. It was either one made-up thing or I know we have some Smithsonian uh, listeners, so please get a hold of us. Talk to me about what if it was some kind of rye poisoning, some kind of fumes. Totally. Some kind of weird personal judgment problem. I don't know. No, I like it. I like it. I always thought the Mary Celeste was like a ghost ship where, you know how there's another one and it would show up and people would see it mm-hmm. and they would be like, oh my God, what's wrong with the ship? And they would get up to it and it wasn't there. Are you thinking of Goonies? That's, <laughs> oh, that's what it is. I'm describing a movie to you from the 80s. No, no, there was one that was like that that was off the coast of like Boston, Ooh. I think, or like in the Northeast, Creepy. I think. I feel like I remember that one where there's that idea of the Mary Celeste isn't technically a ghost ship because she was real. It was just what happened on board of her. Right. Yeah. There's also ghost ships that literally seem to be there because they were there and they're not there. (gasps) Scary. (gasps) All right. Great job. Thank you. To be continued, to be solved. (laughs) Exactly. We'll let you know next week. All right, two great turn-of-the-century stories. Really nice pairing. That was good. Yeah. Thanks for listening, you guys, and playing along at home. What a delight. That was really fun. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening. You said that already. Now I say, stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. Our producer is Alejandra Keck. This episode was engineered and mixed by Stephen Ray Morris. Our researchers are Marin McClashen and Sarah Blair Jenkins. Email your hometowns and fucking hoorays to myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. Goodbye. Goodbye. Follow My Favorite Murder on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase My Favorite Murder merch.